So we didn't buy a boat. We didn't buy, you know, whatever, all that other nonsense. So we went and just bought out cash flow and assets. And so we had a portfolio of real estate, which we still own a bunch of it now. And we had some, some cash in the bank. And so I was really looking for the next opportunity. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Martin Signs. Martin is a managing partner in Bequest Funds, and together with his business partner, Sean, they founded Bequest Funds for a dual purpose of helping investors grow their wealth, but also helping mortgage borrowers stay in their home. Before launching Bequest, Martin owned several companies in the government contract space. And as a successful entrepreneur and real estate investor for over 15 years, he brings a high level of strategy and experience to uh, Bequest Funds in this whole conversation. And I'm super excited to have you on. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm humbled and that you invited me on and, and glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start everybody out with the most difficult questions, which is, what's your favorite ice cream? I have to go with mint chocolate chip. So okay. Something about, yeah, the dark chocolate with the whole, the whole minty flavor and combination. We are 40 episodes in and I finally get to go on this tangent. When I was a kid, my dad said, you always get mint chocolate chip because no one else likes mint chocolate chip. So no one will ask you to steal a bite of your ice cream. But you, <laughs> yeah. you actually like the mint and the chocolate together, huh? Oh yeah. I like the whole effect. Absolutely. And throw a brownie on it occasionally. And you know, there you go. You got a thousand calories. <laughs> yeah. Or the little Andes mints, I guess. It's, it's <laughs> like all that wrapped into one. I love it. I love it. There you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? I manage a hedge fund that uh, buys and manages performing mortgage debt as well as non-performing mortgage debt. Awesome. And where did your real estate journey begin? Begin in 04, uh, having read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and a name you probably haven't heard of uh, at all, right? Just kind of after being fired from a corporate job in 2004, my wife and I just went out and uh, we just, you know, read every book we could on investing and, and went to seminars and really just kind of, you know, said to ourselves that we need to take control over our own destiny, over our own finances. And so um, as a result, um, you know, we, we just knew that real estate investing was going to be for us. However, what we learned early on through all the education was we needed to have a business by which, um, by which it was uh, spitting off uh, cash flow and profit for us to roll into real estate and become a buy and hold investor. So uh, we proceeded to uh, found a government contracting company in 05 to do just that. In 2004, before you were laid off, did you know about real estate at all? Because I'm, I'm assuming there's some folks in 2020 that unfortunately, we're moved into a different life direction, one, one reason or another. And that kind of spurs them to go down a different path. Did you already kind of have that path in your mind? Or did you just jump right in because you were forced to? How I would answer that is after college, I was always finding myself in the one ads, looking at property, looking at land. And so but I, I would either I wasn't mature enough, or I just it wasn't the timing for me to kind of put, you know, one and one together to, to recognize that, you know, I really wanted to go in this direction. And, you know, my whole world up to that point was, you know, get it, get a good job, you know, get the steady paycheck, get the health insurance and everything else. So I probably didn't listen to my to my inner gut on things until I was fired. And then it was just like, 
you know, my whole, the whole bubble burst for me. And I said, I said, I'm done with um, corporate America and whatnot. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then I, at, you said a second part to that statement that really intrigues me. You said, I knew that I wanted to invest in real estate, but then I knew I needed to build a business, the cash flow to put it into that, something along those lines. That's really interesting to me because that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is at a W2, you can only make so much more money before you have to go invest in other income streams to continue to snowball your wealth. What was it about government contracting that interests you and how did you get involved in that? My wife and I, we went through a number of different business ideas. We looked at existing businesses for sale and, um, and, and we just w- weren't satisfied. So we just kind of sat down and did a, a, an assessment. You know, what, what are our strengths? What are, what are our weaknesses? What's our passion? And, and we came to the conclusion that my wife is highly creative. And, um, and for myself, you know, I'm, I'm decent on the sales and, and marketing side. So um, we kind of combine that to uh, come come with the concept of a museum exhibit company by which we could design, fabricate and and sell museum exhibit products, things you'd see around various museums. And uh, what we said to ourselves as and this is kind of like this is by luck. I mean, I, I didn't have. I learned kind of later in life that this is the way to do things through reading various books. But uh, we said to ourselves, we are going to bypass selling to small businesses and, and mid-sized corporations. And we are going to sell to the largest buyer of goods and services in the world, i.e. the federal government. And we're going to spend all our focus and energy doing just that. And so, um, so that was just that. So, so in essence, there was a three-year path of getting of getting slaughtered on a daily basis financially until we got to the point where we started doing well. <laughs> did that did that end up doing well for you? And and um, uh, were you able to grow it? Yeah. So more importantly, um, more importantly, I learned a lot of life's lessons that uh, about, you know, uh, you know, making payroll the day of and, uh, you know, taking on excessive credit card debt of you know, 220,000 to buy to buy uh, products and equipment and, and just, you know, paying vendors with with um, paying debt with other debt. And I learned, you know, all these kind of survival tactics. I learned to um, kind of smile at the grocery store when your car's getting declined and, uh, and just kind of laugh it off. And so um, those were the lessons. And uh, however, we kind of stuck to it and because uh, we were committed and we were doing it together as a team. And um, what we found in year three was that, um, you know, we got a contract with the Pentagon and uh, we, we had that for years thereafter and, and Smithsonian, and we just started snowballing contracts. So once, once you get momentum, that's everything. I mean, momentum in a positive direction, I should say. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you're trying to bite a huge bite of an elephant, like just building that small relationship or building that small win and showing that you can succeed in that small thing Mm -hmm. will build into bigger things. And so often, so many people think about like the end state and how do I get to that without thinking about what do I have and what can I go do and how do I do it to the best of my ability to show that I deserve the right to compete at that high level. Yeah, I, I wrote a book on government contracting as well. It's called Secrets to Winning Government Contracts. And what's what's funny is like the, the philosophy kind of uh, that, that we took is just look in your area for any kind of 
federal uh, entities, any kind of DOD installations, and go try to sell to them on a micro purchase level where they're just using a credit card and, and try to build momentum that way. So you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't and need not go after like the large elephants in, in the room, you know, entity wise, you just go after the little, the low hanging fruit that nobody else really wants. And that's the small credit card purchases. Yeah. I feel like there's a quote out there that says something like, if you're entrusted with the small things, then you can be entrusted with the big things. So forgot the quote, yeah. but so then you decide you've got the government contract business, it's humming along. And then you decided to buy a commercial property. If I understand correctly, what, what did that deal look like? So, um, and this is, this, I think is funny because my wife still makes fun of me with it, but it, the, the property was listed at 310,000 and this was 2009. So the, the market was still depressed. It's a, it was a commercial space. It was, um, maybe about 2,500 square feet. And, and the owner was owned it free and clear. And so, and so we met with him at a Starbucks and, and, um, I, he's been trying to sell it for a while. And cause the market was really depressed and we needed a space to move our operation out of our house. We had already kind of outgrown things. And so we were there uh, negotiating at Starbucks. And I said, I said, we'd like to offer you $300,000. He was asking for 310 and, you know, give you 10% down. You take back a seller note for 15 years at 6%. And he about jumped out of his chair with excitement. Like, like, you know, like, oh my God, I got this fish on the line. And then he's like, he's like, yeah, done. And he shook my hand. And then my wife was like, what, you know, like, ah, oh, you, you, you sucker. You could have gotten this for a much better deal. But she says it, you know, it's, it's, it's fun and games now, but you know, then, then it wasn't that funny. That was our first real estate deal. So, but either way, I mean, it was, it was good because the next month we bought the neighboring unit from the same guy with seller financing. And we have bought a bunch of property with seller financing with uh, older, older individuals that um, own the property free and clear. They're just looking to get out. They're looking for IR, you know, they're looking for cash flow and annuity play. So, um, you know, that that's all they want, low down payment and just pay them over time. It sounds like you office hacked then basically. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The whole, yep. Yeah. The, yeah. The method. But yeah, it works. Um, I, I think there's a lot of aging uh, commercial um, real estate owners now in this country. And, and um, there's a lot of opportunity that way to still do that tactic. I think. Any tips or tricks on how you found that seller? Yeah. So Craigslist. Okay. So, so yeah, just go to Craigslist and, th and you can even go like, uh, there's like all Craigslist that searches all the Craigslist in the country and, and you can just do various searches, but this was a local Craigslist in, in our area. But if you think about it, you know, older people, they're not, I don't even know. I'm, I'm kind of like old school. So I don't know the latest platform that yeah. all the youth would be on, but yeah. I would go to Craigslist today. If you're like, Hey, do the same thing. And it'd probably be an older old guy, you know, that would sell me a property just the same. Who knows? Cause that's all he knows is Craigslist. So, yeah. so, um, I don't know. Newer isn't always better. Yeah. Saying. You and me both, Martin. I don't know the, the latest craze of the youth today. All I know is TikTok. <laughs> and if there's anything else newer than that, that's, that's where I am. <laughs> Um, so you got the commercial property and then you went out and bought another one, but then you decided to get into kind of note space. So I want to, why first, before we get into like, what is a note and all that, why did you decide to make the shift from commercial property into notes? Yeah. So we built the company up, um, to be very profitable, uh, 
2011 to 2013, and we sold the company at a premium in 2013. So I was sitting on a lot of cash and uh, I was sitting on property because actually what, what we were doing is every time we got a big hit on a government payout, we, I, we went and bought property. So we didn't buy a boat. We didn't buy, you know, whatever, all that other nonsense. So we went and just bought out cash flow and assets. And so um, we had a portfolio of real estate, which we still own a bunch of it now. And, uh, and we had some, some cash in the bank. And so I was really looking for the next opportunity. However, I wanted to focus on freedom of time because I was kind of burnt out from like hundred hour work weeks of small business ownership. And, um, and so I wanted, so I stumbled upon note investing, which I thought at the time would just be like easy peasy, you know, buy a note and it would just pay you forever. But there's a lot of work involved, but it's very lucrative, just the same. Yeah. I, uh, most of our listeners know I'm in a sales role and part of being in a sales role is that you do get these lumpy commission checks where one month is great. And the next month, maybe not so great. Yeah. And one of the reasons I got into real estate was essentially that, like, I wanted to find a way to even out my cash flow mm -hmm. coming in each and every month. And that's why I got into real estate is because it produces income that could steady out those bad months and make the better, the good months even better. Um, yeah. so you, you went into notes. So let's start high level. Like what is a note? Yeah, sure. So a note is a, a, you could also term it a promissory note, which is a, um, you're borrowing money from a lender and you're promising to pay back that money given a certain set of terms. Um, you know, the, the um, monthly payments, the interest rate, the duration of the loan and prepayment penalty and, and other, other factors. And so um, generally that promissory note is tied to some form of collateral in the form of a mortgage or deed of trust, depending on the state. And so, and so that's essentially what, what we started out buying, what I started out buying in, in those notes in a non-performing state, whereby the homeowner hadn't made a payment in four or five years. Yeah, I, um, the easiest way I've heard it explained for somebody that's new to the concept is everybody out there has a note, whether it's your car loan, your uh, real estate mortgage, or even your credit card. All of those are notes that investors can go buy if the, the owner of that paper wants to sell it off. Um, so you, you brought up that you eventually got, you first got into distressed notes. Can you talk to us a little bit about like, what is a performing note? What is a non-performing note? And at what level does it become quote unquote distressed? Yeah. So, you know, non-performing note money's leaving your account, <laughs> you know, performing note money's coming into your account on a regular basis, typically monthly. Um, but, but um, you know, the two true technical definition is anything, any mortgage note or note in general, that's delinquent beyond 90 days is generally considered a defaulted mortgage note. And um, you know, any note that is paying within a 90 day period um typically a, a note that's current is uh, a performing mortgage note. Okay. And then you started the distressed notes. W was there a reason you started there versus performing? Um, I think I just didn't know any better. I, I think that was just kind of what, what, what I stumbled into. It was, it was kind of one of those scenarios. I had taken a seminar, I'd read some books and the whole, the whole allure of, um, hey, you could buy a $100,000 mortgage at $20,000 and then, and then take the property back and resell the property, reposition it, sell it with seller financing, blah, 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 and, get, and you know, earn 80,000 
And so you're, you're talking about a 60 K spread and you could do that. How many times, as many times as you can make it happen, that kind of thing. And so, but what, what I found though, is that, um, not all notes are created equal, right? And and um, it's it's actually a better social good, um, and it's actually more lucrative long term if you exit through the homeowner by keeping them in the home and with with cash flowing payments through a loan modification, whereby they can actually afford the monthly payments, and you help them get back on their feet. Yeah, I think that's the real beauty in this space is that if you go buy a $100,000 property that has maybe $80,000 left on an unpaid balance and you're buying it at $20,000 because it's un, uh, not performing, then you really are the bank at that point. Mm -hmm. As long as you get that borrower back on a payment schedule and it works for you and it works for them, then all of a sudden you have a cash flowing asset. Whereas before, going through the eviction process, who knows what they're going to do on the way out, who knows what's going to happen during the eviction process, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's really interesting. Where where do you find notes for sale? Do you typically go to sellers or do you go to banks or where are you finding them? So so at um so we're and I say this with humility, we're a little we're a little higher up the food chain than when I first started. So yeah. we buy from we buy from hedge funds, you know, anywhere from you know 500 million to 700 million assets under management. And so we have a steady stream of inventory coming from relationships that we have in place that we've kind of fostered over the course of years. However, with that said, um, I think the, the question is um, what people would be curious about is if they started note investing today, you know, where would they go find notes? And, and so I would answer, I would answer it this way. Um, you can go to Paperstack and you can go to other platforms and find notes and buy them. Um, but I, I would say that I would suggest that anyone starting today would spend less time and emphasis on, on finding a note to buy and more energy and resources on, on becoming educated in the space there's a lot of complexities around sourcing, due diligence, compliance, and asset management that one needs to really have systems in place and uh, resources financially as well as labor um, before they go off into note investing. When I first started note investing in 2013, you could find notes everywhere, just like you can find a realtor everywhere now, you know, nowadays on every street corner. And so, um, but that's no more. It's uh, all, the, all the inventories moved upstream. And, um, and, and there's more, um, there's less on the retail front, probably no different than MLS and real and the real estate side. And so you really have to be positioned to be able to, um, to talk with these, to know who these sellers are, to be able to talk with them intelligently, um, to be able to, um, back up what it is you're doing, raise capital appropriately. And with that, you need to have your, your systems in place and, and really get a sound education before you start. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, that things have moved upstream because when I first started on my little note rabbit hole, I started looking at banks. I start, and my thought process was like, if you're a community bank, you don't want to be known as the bank in town that's kicking out and foreclosing on people's properties. You'd rather yeah. sell off that distressed asset, let Matt Four come in and be the bad guy mm -hmm. that's closing on a foreclosure rather than the community bank. And what I found is exactly that. Like, the distressed asset market when you're not connected with the right folks. I mean, you're buying it at 90 cents on the dollar when somebody who's plugged into the space could be buying at like 60 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar, just at a much more premium. And then we haven't even gotten into like, 
what makes a good note? Because I've heard judicial states, non-judicial states, all of that kind of stuff. Can you talk us through a little bit about what you look for in a note when you find one? Yeah, I'll, I'll first say that I'll, before I say that, I'll just kind of I just want to address like your your point, which is a good one in that um, when you buy at a retail level and you're overpaying for that asset, what you're essentially doing is you're limiting the social good that you can do for that homeowner to stay in their home. And so the, the chances of them getting as good of a deal or, or negotiating a deal that helps them stay in their home with a payment they can afford is limited at that point. Now, with that said, um, you know, what makes a good note? Um, gosh, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, uh, I think that's its own podcast. I would, I would say it, it depends on what you're set up for as an investor. Uh, and this is, this is going back. I think this is a Kiyosaki right here. Um, Cashflow quadrant. It's like, what makes an investment a good investment? And he says, no, it's the investor, right? The investor makes the investment good or bad. And, and so the knowledge of that investor, how, you know, educated they are, what, what they know. And, and a quote from that book is uh, money is more clearly seen with your mind than your eyes. And I, I love that quote and I have it hanging in the office here. And so really it's, it's how well educated and, and is that investor and, and how are their systems in place to purchase notes? Because we could go out and we could buy a non-performing senior mortgage. We could go buy a performing um, junior lien mortgage. We could buy a business note. We could buy unsecured debt and, in every category we could buy and we would understand clearly what the return expectations are in that. Yeah. So in Bequest, do you all buy debt that's not in real estate? So, um, so Bequest, so we have two separate hedge, we have two separate funds. We have a hedge fund that buys distressed mortgages. That's a privately held fund that my partner and I own. And then we have Bequest Funds that is a 506C Reg D fund. And that's an income fund that whereby we take on accredited investors and we purchase only seasoned performing mortgage debt in that fund. But we also have, um, we also have a few other pillars. Um, if we ever get kind of light on deal flow with residential mortgages uh, that, that we can occasionally buy business loans that are, that are tied to, uh, you know, tangible assets or do hard money lending. But 99% of our portfolio in Bequest funds is performing owner-occupied residential mortgage debt. Is the risk profile on business debt just so a little bit higher than residential? Like, can you talk me through the differences there? Yeah. So, you know, business note, uh, business loan debt, you know, deals a lot with, um, deals a lot with obviously the assets of the business, right? Because that's what you'll be taking back. Um, what's it, FF&E, Goodwill, are you, are you doing a private equity play willing to take back the, the company upon default? Um, what's the personal guarantee? That's very significant. But not just the personal guarantee of, of the buyer of that business. So assume it's a business note based on a transaction where someone sold the company to person B. And generally, when a business note's taken back, 60% um, of the time, business notes are taken back in such transaction. And so person B will personally guarantee the business note upon default. But when you buy a business note, you should also seek a personal guarantee on the seller of the business too, who's selling you the discounted cash flow note. Gotcha. Well. Gotcha. So you have two PGs in place. Gotcha. 
Um, going through COVID, there's this there's this idea out there that uh, real estate market would crash and that there would be a lot of distressed assets out there, whether they be housing or notes. We saw the federal government kind of flood the space and kind of prop up the market for at least the short term by canceling evictions and foreclosures and things like that. How are you seeing that play out in the note space? Yeah, so I mean, the the um, the the media, you know, did a great job of kind of promoting this whole whole forbearance and uh, moratorium, the eviction moratorium, and um, and and that made a lot of news coverage. Um, and so, so uh, they almost gave this uh, misconception that you know homeowners are just kind of skating free and and uh, and and uh, not not paying their bills. But what we found all throughout COVID, I mean, we've had our most profitable years the past two years. We're finding that people are valuing where they live more than they have in the past. And, um, and, and we're having record numbers of loan modifications and resolutions, such as payoffs and reinstatements. And um, we're still having very meaningful conversations with the homeowner. And, uh, you know, because our whole, our whole business model is centered around building relationships with the homeowners. So that they that we're first in mind when it comes to making payments on a monthly basis, and uh, we haven't found any um, slow slowdown in what we do. Our performing portfolio sits at ninety six percent collected, so um, you know we're we're pretty happy with that. Yeah, the the thing I really like that you um, emphasize in my research and and through this conversation is the relationship with the homeowner, right? It's not only better for society that those people stay in their homes and we figure a way out, but it's better economically. When you start looking at a foreclosure process, if anybody's gone through an eviction process, they know in certain states it can take up to nine months. In Tennessee and Texas, it's a little bit faster. But um, not only is the link, the process and the, the legal fees involved and all these kind of issues around what are they doing with the home and all that kind of stuff. So I love that you bring the social aspect of it out on how do we make this work for the borrower to stay in their home because it's better economically and societal for us. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like you kind of learn. thank you for that. You kind of learn over the over the course of years being in business that um, that there's so many companies, major corporations and whatnot that are just treat people like garbage, <laughs> like customers like garbage. And, and then you come to the realization, like how we run our fund, how we treat our homeowners, how we treat our investors. And, and we, we learn that over the course, if you just treat people like gold, you will do a lot more business and you'll have a lot less problems. I mean, just that whole, it's just, I don't know. It's like what you would teach a child. And, and um, I don't know, but, but there's still so many companies that do it the other way. I'm smiling ear to ear over here because we do a new segment where we cut like a snippet. I want to kind of talk about on the note space is taxes. So most people get into real estate because the tax benefits of depreciation and things, deductions and things like that are really high. Can you talk us through how taxes are viewed on notes specifically? Yeah, so there's there's limited tax advantages for mortgage note investing if you're going to own the the um, the note itself, um, and uh, there's there's a few ways to kind of look at it. Bequest funds, um, if we have a capital gains play, we actually share that on on everyone's year end K ones. So a portion of the income is going to be capital at capital gains. A portion will be at ordinary income. Um, but if you're just a note investor where you're owning individual notes yourself. Then, um, then, then uh, a majority of it's going to be at uh, ordinary income. There's yep. very little advantages to it. And that's only the principal portion of it, right? 
Or the uh, interest, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, the interest income, yes, the interest portion of it, yes, that's correct, is, is going to be at the ordinary income, correct. Is your fund set up without going into too many specifics? Is your fund set up of a return on capital until the end of the fund, or is it return of and on of capital until the closure of the fund? Yeah, so it is. Uh, so Bequest, it's a legacy play, so it's set up as an evergreen fund. So there's no expiration. So it is, um, you know, you, you put in a, a subscribe with a principal amount and that principal amount is preserved over the course of time until you redeem at a later point. And uh, up until the time you do so, um, you'll earn interest at either an 8% option or a 9% annual pref option. And uh, distributions are paid monthly. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look into this because it, 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 your funds more specifically because it's hits it hitting on all buckets that I want. A little yeah. bit of liquidity with a month, a year or two, monthly principal, eight or nine percent return, and you get all all of your essentially your initial principal back when you decide to redeem. I mean, it's mm. a it it sounds good on the surface. I'd love to kind of chat offline. Yeah, about more. I got my I got I got my own money in it. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. It's all all reliable. So all, it's boring. It's a boring fund. That's that's how we kind of like to think about it. Yeah, and I'll give a kind of a thought process too here, just a, as a little plug is this is how I kind of think about retirement funds. So most of our listeners probably know that you can do self-directed IRAs, self-directed Roth IRAs and things like that. This would be a great fit for that because you're not going to get some of the tax advantages of like commercial real estate and residential real estate, but you are going to get the uh, consistent income produced off of that asset. So put it in a tax advantaged vehicle, get some good advantage, uh, get some good interest off of that, and then uh, not have to pay taxes on it or have a better tax structure, I guess. Yep, absolutely. Um, Martin, I want to shift us now to our last round here. We're calling these the five toppings. Um, our first one is, what is your favorite book? Oh gosh, I have to go uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Actually, I'll go Cashflow Quadrant. I, I like that the best out of, out of Rich Dad. I'm glad that you said that because I believe Cashflow Quadrant is by far the best book he's written. Even though Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you got to give it its kudos, Cashflow Quadrant. Mm -hmm. I think once you understand Rich Dad, Poor Dad, ca Cashflow Quadrant kind of really helped me shape my mind there. Oh, it's there's so many truisms in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our second one is, I believe that the person you'll become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you do every single day. What is something that you do every single day? I'm up by 4am and uh, I'm either working out or getting my day started to some way. I have uh, routines whereby I look at my finances on a daily basis. So I'm fully focused. Um, I think one should do that, whether they have they have no money or they have some money. Um, it's just kind of a habit that, that's um, very, very positive. And, um, and, and I think that's it is just kind of have, have some routines early in the morning to get your day going. You are my identical twin because I get up at four, two, everybody thinks I'm crazy. I do my workouts in the morning. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. And I look at money every single day, just because it puts yeah. it at the front of your mind and yeah. it just gives you clarity on where you're going. And doesn't feel like you're moving when you look at it every single day, but if you look back on it over a year, over six months, over two years, it definitely makes a difference. Subconsciously, it, it, your mind's moving. That's right. That's right. Um, our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah, so uh, only invest in assets that you can control in the cash flow. Okay. And, and I can't, actually came up with that myself, and I learned it the hard way <laughs> because I did it the opposite way. And uh, investing money in a tech company and doing all sorts of things that I had no business doing. 
So I learned that I need to control the asset and it needs to cash flow for me. That's uh, my number one rule of investing. If anybody comes to me, I'm like, get started in investments that produce income because mm -hmm. that way it allows you to continue to use that money to grow it in other places. Whereas if you've just put in a big tech deal, maybe it pops off 10 years from now and you're the, you're overly wealthy, but maybe not. And you just lost it all. So better to start reducing your risk by getting income constantly. And, and that, uh, that's great. And a lot of the practices that you would do to earn, you know, $100 monthly passive income is the same practice you would use to earn $10,000 a month passive income. That's and right. So just learn, focus on the disciplines and learning the principles. Love it. Love it. Um, our fourth one is what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? Uh, that, that my wife, uh, I say this with humility, but my wife hasn't had to think about money in 10 years that at one, at one, at any given point, um, my kids go to private school. Um, they're well cared for. Um, you know, it's just, it just, just that like me, I'll, I'll stress and I'll do it. will go all buggy. Cause I'm just buggy in general, but that's good. Like it's, it's, it's just for them to kind of grow up where they don't have to stress over what so many people have to stress over. And not just that, um, the books that I've written and I kind of just try to give my to-dos and everything and what's, what's I've done, I've gotten positive feedback from other people that it's helped them in some way. And so just, just helping other people, I'd say. It's kind of funny because I'm, I'm thinking in my mind about Martin in 2004, five, six, when you're trying to get the government contracting oh, business off the table and- <laughs> And now you look back on it and you're, you're, that's, that's why you, uh, that's why you're the most proud of that is because you exactly. worked really hard. Yeah. Thank you. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah. So, um, my, my background, uh, religious, uh, religious speaking is I'm a Christian. And so I'd say Jesus, um, you know, I would want to learn, you know, from, from him, you know, being the great teacher that he, that he was, and, you know, I believe is. And, and so, um, that's what I would go with. Um, we didn't have that as a single answer for 40 episodes and then we got two back to back. So <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> oh gosh. We need more spirituality in our country. <laughs> yeah, for uh, sure. Uh, well, this is great. I really appreciate the, uh, the time, Martin. Uh, before we got on here and chatted, I, I mentioned that you were somebody that were, was on my list of people to connect with and reach out to because I've heard so many good things about the people you've connected with and the, and the network that you've built and everybody has pointed me back to you. So I can't say enough good things about you and I've enjoyed our time together. If our listeners wanted to have the same experience and learn more about you, where could we put point them? Yeah, just email me. Uh, martin at bqfunds.com. I'll be happy to kind of steer you in the direction. If you have a general inf question on notes, I mean, just, just punch me up. Um, you know, any investor type questions, I'll, I'll turn you on to Kirsten, who's our, um, who's my right-hand person. And uh, we'll just go from there, but um, I'm here to help. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll make sure to plug your books as well, because uh, I've, I've heard your note investing book is pretty good and I've got it on order from Amazon today. So Thank I look you. forward to, to reading it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.